This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Greentech Media. Welcome to the show. I am Stephen Lacey. And this week, we've got a compilation of our most popular interviews of the year. Ever since we started this show back in 2014, we had a single mission to try to break down the complexity of the global energy transformation. Whether that's digging through reports, concepts, acronyms, business deals, trends, we're constantly trying to make these topics accessible, yet wonky. And some of our most popular episodes featured guests who were particularly good at delivering on that mission. So we're going to serve up some snippets of those conversations. You know, when you do dozens and dozens of episodes a year, it isn't easy to choose which ones make the cut for the top list. So we chose the ones that you listen to the most, and they happen to cover a wide swath of issues from policy and politics to economics to tech. First up is our third most popular interview featuring Dr. Leah Stokes. Leah is an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at UC Santa Barbara. Leah's been a well-known expert on environmental politics for a while, but she had kind of a breakout year this year. Her analysis on the presidential candidates was widely passed around. She has a new book out as well, and she was out in front when the Green New Deal exploded to explain the public opinion trends and the activist forces behind it. And that's what we talked about in this interview. In a year when the Green New Deal was a powerful force behind climate and clean energy politics, it's no wonder that so many listeners gravitated to this episode. So here's an excerpt of my conversation with Dr. Leah Stokes about how the Green New Deal is shaping the political world. Like many things with public opinion polling, uh, you know, it really depends on how you ask the question. And with the Green New Deal, it also depends on when you asked it. So, um, you know, when the idea first started to come out in the fall after Sunrise Movement actions at Nancy Pelosi's office, um, initially the Green New Deal was very popular. Some of the first polls to come out about it from groups like the Yale Project on Climate Change Communication uh, were really positive. Um, but then uh, the Fox News effect sort of took over, and David Roberts at Vox has written about that. And, um, you know, that really put... Uh, the Green New Deal idea through the ringer. And um, it did crash support, uh, particularly amongst Republicans who are the group, you know, to a large extent watching Fox News. Um, But even with that ringer that it went through, um, there's some polling from groups like Data for Progress. Uh, Sean McElwee has written this up in The New York Times in March, and it really shows that there's still a majority support uh, in almost every state for the Green New Deal. So, you know, the idea still has legs. Uh, It's definitely going to go through the American political system and uh, go through polarization as pretty much every issue does these days. But, um, you know, people know that the climate crisis is a really big problem and they want to have the government start dealing with it. So I think that the Green New Deal still has some potential as an idea. So what are the different framings that people react either positively or negatively to across party lines? Yeah, so I'm working on a paper right now with a few colleagues that looks exactly at that issue. And it builds on some earlier work that I've published looking at renewable portfolio standards, basically clean energy laws at the state level. So if... If you ask about specific parts of the Green New Deal, for example, a job guarantee, affordable housing, a minimum wage, you know, those are all really popular ideas. And some of them are even quite bipartisan. So in the work that I'm working on right now, this unpublished research, 
We find that job guarantees are really popular, as is affordable housing, actually. So, um, and of course, when you ask poor people, would you like the minimum wage to be raised to $15 an hour? You know, they support that. So the idea that the Green New Deal has, which makes it quite distinct from other kinds of climate policy, is that it packages in social policies, many of which address growing income inequality, address the housing crisis that's playing out across the country, that really gets at things that people are dealing dealing with in their everyday lives. And so that's what I think makes it more popular. Um, and of course, more broadly, with the climate policy parts of the package, there are certain things that people really like. So research and development for clean energy is the perennial favorite of the public. Everybody loves that. It usually gets support above 90%, and it's quite bipartisan. Uh, the second most popular thing are those clean energy standards, those RPSs um, that were initially passed at the state level, but that groups have been trying to pass at the federal level for a long time. And in the research that I'm working on right now, we asked about, well, would you like a clean energy standard with, let's say, nuclear or with um, carbon capture and sequestration? And, you know, it doesn't really matter how you phrase it. People really like this idea of setting a target and a goal for how much clean energy uh, we're going to produce. The third thing that we've been finding in our work, which is quite new and interesting, is actually that prosecuting fossil fuel companies is pretty darn popular. That's probably the third most popular thing after R&D and clean energy standards. Um, you know, this is a growing idea coming out of some of the investigative journalism work about Exxon and Shell. Um and the public, much like they supported the Department of Justice going after big tobacco, they're increasingly supporting the government going after fossil fuel companies for climate denial uh, and fraud and uh, delay on climate action for several decades now. Um, in other work that I have done uh, looking at clean energy standards, things that tend to work from a framing perspective are focusing on jobs, focusing on air quality, talking about bipartisan support. So really framing it around the benefits of action. And there are a lot of benefits from climate policy. Of course, uh, climate change as a word and as an issue area is highly polarized. That's not surprising since fossil fuel companies and electric utilities have spent the past 30 years raging a denial campaign in the public view. Um, so when you talk about it in terms of climate change, as opposed to talking about in terms of jobs or clean energy, you get less support. And of course, if you talk about costs, whether that be at the household level or in terms of spending, uh, that tends to reduce support as well. And a, a kind of interesting point is that uh, for the transportation sector, there isn't a lot of support for banning uh, automobiles, you know, combustion engine automobiles uh, and requiring total uh, the entire fleet to be electric vehicles by a certain date. And unfortunately, you're going to need to make big changes in the transportation sector to deal with the climate crisis. So overall, I think, you know, certain policies like R&D and clean energy standards and even potentially judicial approaches to dealing with fossil fuel companies are really popular. And then other things like the costs and banning combustion engine automobiles, they are not so popular. And I guess this brings me to my final question, which is bringing us back to the original premise, which is what has the Green New Deal revealed about the electorate and this current political moment in energy climate politics? Maybe that surprised you or that would surprise other people when reevaluating this issue? 
You know, we've all been waiting for the Green New Deal for a long time. We have been waiting for somebody to speak truth to power and to say that the scale of this crisis is massive, that it touches all kinds of Americans from every walk of life all across this country, and that we cannot continue to deny and delay. I think that um, whether or not we ever see a Green New Deal pass Congress, it has fundamentally reshaped the climate conversation. For too long, economists were really the dominant voices in the room, and they said, look, we just need to get this little incremental marginal price on carbon. We just need to, you know, tweak the prices on pollution, and it will magically fix everything. Thing. And I think that the Green New Deal has been a seismic shift in that rhetoric because it says that we can't talk about the climate crisis in that way because A, it will not solve the problem, and B, it will not be politically acceptable. You know, if you just increase Americans' costs to fuel their cars, to light up their homes, to just do their everyday tasks by raising the cost of energy through a carbon price, that is not going to be popular. And why is that not going to be popular? Because we have growing income inequality and wage stagnation that cuts across racial lines in this country. You know, that is why we have to understand that climate change is about social policy, is about lots of different issues that Americans are facing. You know, Julian Noiscat from Data for Progress wrote an excellent article in The Guardian, which really lays out why climate policy is a social justice issue. And I think that uh, that's just true. If we take the approach that economists have been telling us to take, we are likely to face massive resistance from the public and fail to solve the problem. So why not come up with a legislative package that's popular and that is at the scale of the problem? Again, Dr. Leah Stokes is an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at UC Santa Barbara. You can listen to that full episode from July 15th if you want to hear the full conversation. Next up is our second most downloaded interview of 2019. It's with futurist and author Ramez Nam. Ramez joined us back in April to unpack his analysis on the exponential changes underway in energy. Ramez is well-known in energy circles, but he actually became well-known outside of energy as a science fiction writer and tech futurist. And many years back, he turned his attention to the energy sector, seeing just how fast things were evolving. And he's now chair of energy and environmental systems at Singularity University. Shale and I talked to him about all kinds of economic and tech trends. A big chunk of the interview centered around the different phases of disruption underway in energy. So in this excerpt, you'll hear us debate and discuss those phases and why they make Ramez optimistic about the future. Yeah, so we're really we're just about to start phase three, I would say. So phase one, and this is the, the period that most people uh, who criticize renewables uh, to focus on, is from, you know, whenever renewables started, let's say 1980 until maybe 2015, there was almost no place on earth where clean energy was cheaper without subsidies than building a fossil fuel plant. Right. And so this was the entirely policy dependent, subsidy dependent period of uh, clean energy. And Europe, especially you know, Germany, but also Spain, Italy, spent tens of billions of euros, a couple hundred billion euros spreading solar and wind uh, in their in their own nations. And at the end of that, you could say, hey, solar was only one percent of global electricity. Wind was maybe four percent. What did Europe get for this couple hundred billion euros? And there's a lot of critics who say this is a terrible idea. But the big impact was that they drove down the cost 
of electricity from solar and wind by a factor of 10. And so that's why around 2015, we entered the second phase, where in places with good wind, good solar, it was actually starting to become cheaper to build a new solar or wind farm than it was to build a new coal or natural gas plant. Not everywhere around the world, but in the sunniest parts for solar and the windiest parts for wind. And that was sort of, you know, relatively unlooked for. I actually wrote about that in 2011, and 2015 was the date that I picked. I was actually super naive, but for a variety of reasons, uh, the math worked out anyway. But then the much more disruptive moment is, you know, it took a 10x drop, let's say, to go from the beginning of phase one to the beginning of phase two. If the price of solar and wind drops by another half or another factor of three, which is less than that 10x drop, it becomes cheaper to build new solar or wind than it is to keep existing fossil fuel plants, especially coal plants in the U.S., but natural gas in some parts of the world too. It gets cheaper to build a new solar or wind plant than to keep existing fossil fuel plants running. And we're just, we're not really there yet, but we're just seeing the first hints of it. Next Era CEO Jim Robo said, about a year ago, that by the early 2020s, it'd be cheaper to build new solar or wind than keep their coal fleet running. Uh, this utility in Indiana in October, NIPSCO, announced that the cheapest thing for them was to go from being 65% coal-powered uh, right now to 15% coal-powered by 2023 and replace all of that coal with solar and wind. And now we have forecasts from Carbon Tracker, from even from McKinsey, that say basically almost everywhere on Earth before 2030, it'll be cheaper to build new solar or wind than to keep coal plants or gas plants running. So that's the third phase. Shale, what do you think about how he outlined those phases historically and, and what that means for this moment in time? I actually broadly agree. Um, I think it's a heuristic in terms of thinking about the global progression of renewable energy. I think that I think that's about right. I would add maybe a couple of nuances to it that I think are interesting. For example, in that second phase, you know, the period from 2015 to say today or the next few years, the phase when it was just, we were just cresting over the point where in certain cases, you could be a utility somewhere, you could put on an open source RFP for any technology and the cheapest bid that you would get back would be a wind or solar bid. Um, that was true. And as Ramez, you mentioned, primarily true in the sunniest places. So you started to see these really cheap bids for solar in Saudi Arabia and in Mexico and places like that. Um, wind and, you know, especially uh, really windy areas and sort of North central United States and Northern Europe. Um, but especially in the case of solar, despite the fact that that was starting to happen, that is not where the majority of wind and solar were being built and are being built during that time. So I th do think it's important to note that the market for renewables is still today and has been throughout this whole second phase really highly concentrated in a small number of markets. And those markets are still subsidized in one form or another. The United States being an obvious example, we still have the investment tax credit and the production tax credit here in addition to some state level renewable energy mandates and other things. China being the other big example, which has a variety of um, both explicit and implicit subsidies for, for wind and solar. And so you know, I think what has been important in order to maintain momentum and the benefits of scale throughout phase two has been the continued existence of the subsidies that are so much so maligned from phase one, but perhaps at a lower level. 
And I agree with that. I, I'm not making the case that we should end subsidies because uh, you can look and say coal and gas, especially coal, is getting a huge implicit subsidy in not having to pay for the the health benefits of air pollution or the health harms of air pollution and the, the climate. Uh, and I'm not even saying that the disruption that solar and wind and storage and EVs will bring is going to happen fast enough. I am saying that at this point, if these trends continue, it looks like economics plus the current policies we have around the world are going to disrupt at least the large majority of fossil fuel electricity and of fossil fuel ground transport. Again, I think we need to go faster than that, but this gives me a tremendous amount of hope. In this phase three stage that you say we're entering now, where it's starting to become in certain places cheaper to build new renewable generation than to operate, continue to operate existing thermal generation, is the is the outcome of that that you think is most likely to happen that we're just going to see a wave of early retirements of existing plants around the globe? I mean, will economics win out if that's that's what you think is going to happen? I think economics will win out, but there will be nuances around this. There will be some places where people entrench policy to protect the existing incumbent players and the existing fossil fuel um industry. For instance, in Mexico, we had amazing energy reform a few years ago, and now the new administration is saying there's going to be no more solar auctions, right? So policy can still block uh, clean energy. And then you'll see a variety of other things. Will these coal plant operators, let's say, will they just go out of business and will that be a loss for their lenders? Or are they going to ask for a bailout from the government as part of a deal that gets signed? Uh, So I, I think that politics will will intervene in various ways but fundamentally when the economics are on one side i think the economics start to impact politics as well and you will see a whole lot of early retirements so the other factor here though though i'm a proponent of sort of the heuristic of what is cheaper on a levelized cost basis a you know one plant or another plant renewable plant or a thermal plant wind plant or solar plant i think it's useful as a first order thing but um there is an argument that that a bunch of folks have made, and I think is is warranted to some degree that, especially as we get into this third phase, that that's an insufficient way to think about it. And specifically, um, though it may be true that on a pure dollars per kilowatt hour basis, wind or solar may be the the cheapest resource um, and cheaper perhaps than even operating some existing thermal plants. You you don't just need kilowatt hours. Um, you need kilowatt hours matched to the the timing of load, accounting for whatever flexibility of load that we have. And so folks are starting to argue that look, this is the wrong way to think about it, um, and it doesn't actually reflect the true economics. The true economics are are based on value to the grid at any given time of any given resource. And on that basis at least in some cases, it's a harder mountain to climb for wind and solar because for all the reasons that we've talked about many times before on this podcast, you you build a bunch of it and the value of the next incremental amount of it starts to decline because it's all generating at the same time. So how do you think about that nuance? How how much do you think that changes this sort of the, what's going to happen as a result of phase three? Yeah, I think that nuance is, is absolutely correct. I mean, I think that intermittency becomes an issue. And, you know, as, as you've talked about, you have too much generation of solar wind at certain hours. It, it drives down the wholesale price of those hours. I think, you know, we'll see a couple things happen. One is I think energy storage technologies are headed in 
the same direction. They're following the same path as solar, more or less, uh, more or less on that same price decline curve. So I think for getting to multi-hour storage for dealing with the evening peak, uh, smoothing out sort of on the daily, you know, hours today level, I think that's going to get down to a few cents per kilowatt hour, per kilowatt hour round trip to those batteries uh, over the next decade or, or 15 years or so, maybe even faster than that. And I think that's going to smooth out a lot of the, the daily issues. There's still some real challenges uh, when you think about uh, seasonal storage. We think about uh, in Europe, especially, which is much more wind dominated than the U.S. or maybe to some extent in China as well, where you have uh, a winter energy demand peak and wind is the best resource really in, in northern Europe, especially. And you have a week at a time, maybe two weeks at a time, where across Europe, the winds are low. So we have to solve that issue. What I'd say is when I do the math, when I look at the modeling studies uh, people have done, Ken Caldera's group had a, a great paper out recently, I think we can get to 70-80% of electricity from wind and solar and sort of multi-hour storage across a continent-sized grid, and, and then building transmission of that size becomes also a political issue. So that that's what I see. I'm not sure that we have what it takes to get to 100% uh, wind and solar, but you add in hydro, I'd say, I'd make an argument that we should keep all the nuclear reactors we have running as long as we possibly can. Uh, and, you know, I talk to startups, and I know you do too, Shale, and I see a, a dozen different startups looking at the seasonal storage problem. I see people looking at power to gas or power to hydrogen, and it starts to look viable. So for me, I say that that first 70-80% looks like that's the path we're on, and then we have challenges to solve for the, the last 20 or 30%, uh, but I suspect we're underestimating our innovative powers for that as well. Again, that was from our conversation with Ramez Nam back in the spring, in April. To hear the entire interview, go back to the April 23rd episode. It's called The Futurist's Take on Exponential Energy Shifts. And that brings us to our final excerpt, not just our most popular interview, but actually our most popular episode of the year. It's a conversation about the state of distributed energy aggregation. It's between Shale and his colleague Adam James, the chief of staff at Energy Impact Partners. Adam is a former colleague of ours at Green Tech Media. He later went on to work at SolarCity and Tesla. He's done a lot of writing and thinking about the future of market reforms and how they might help us bundle solar, batteries, smart thermostats, smart water heaters, and all kinds of other technologies to provide services to the grid. This is a super hot area right now. So many companies are thinking about it, experimenting with it, preparing for it. But it's not as hot in reality, only because the market structures haven't caught up with the technology and software. And that's probably why it was such a popular interview. A lot of listeners out there in the business world are trying to understand how and why this future full of virtual power plants will materialize. Why do we care if these are aggregated? Yeah, I've been thinking about this and I, you know, I normally hate the Airbnb to energy comparisons because I think it reminds me too much of the peer-to-peer -peer energy transactions uh, discussion, which I think is not super plausible. But the part about Airbnb that I do think kind of gives a good corollary for why this would matter is that uh, Air what Airbnb did as a business was recognize that there's this pretty expensive but underutilized asset in the home and that by building some kind of a network, 
you can allow people to plug into and utilize that value. And today, at least when it comes to storage, especially, um, most of that is largely not utilized to its maximum potential by the people who have it on their homes. And it's a pretty expensive investment. And so there's a lot of room in there to get more value out of it if you can find a way to let somebody else use it or let other entities use it in the case of you know, grid services. Um, so just to give an example, if you're a customer and you put up you know, a power wall or an LG Chem, uh, some kind of storage system on your home, and you have it there primarily because you're just worried about there being a blackout, uh, most of the time it's just sitting there and isn't really doing much for you. And even if you're doing some load shifting and taking advantage of you know the differences between retail rates during the day, there's still going to be some portion of it that's unused, especially when you look at those things at scale. And so uh, to me, I think some of it just comes down to there's a lot of untapped potential when you look at these kinds of resources at scale. And there's an opportunity for customers to get a lot more value by you know basically Air- Airbnb being some of their some of their technology when they're not using it. Yeah. I think there's, there's two different lenses through which you can look at it. That's a good explanation of the first lens, which is the potential customer value, you know, distributed energy resources are inherently customer cited. So by unlocking value, by aggregating a bunch of these resources and getting some economics out of that, um, one way or another, you can pass through some of that value to the end user, to the customer where the thing is cited. So you can make this stuff cheaper. One example of that would be our colleague, our joint colleague, Andy Lubershane, who's been on this podcast before, ran some numbers for a theoretical smart electric water heater in MISO territory in the Midwest in the U.S. and said, if you could extract all the, the theoretical value um, out of the energy and ancillary services markets and capacity markets in MISO with an electric water heater. Um, and by just adding a smart controller to an existing water heater, you could entirely pay back that water heater over a five-year period and then actually earn some money. So in theory, if you could do all of that, you could literally give away these smart water heater controllers and in fact even give some dollars along with it in theory, right? So there's like enormous economic value to be extracted for the customer in theory. Um, and then from the grids perspective, which I think is the second lens, you know, we have this, this big dynamic that we've talked about a million times before on this podcast of increasing renewable energy penetration. And, uh, because of that increasing intermittency on the grid and therefore the kind of coin of the realm increasingly being, the provision of flexibility of one kind or another. And that flexibility can come from um, centralized resources. They can come from big batteries and from, you know, thermal generation that can ramp up and down. It can come from all that stuff, but there's also this huge untapped potential for DERs to provide that flexibility. Um, And anywhere from, you know, estimates range from say in the, in the middle of, the 2020s, depending on how much of this stuff gets installed, you have the capacity to provide enough flexibility to meet maybe 15, 20, even 30% of, of peak load in the entire country um, just via the control of these behind the meter resources. Now, will that all happen? You know, probably not, but that's, that's a, a huge amount. So it's, it could potentially be good for the customer, potentially good for the grid. Yeah. And, and the reason that, that that matters to take another half a step is because traditionally the response to why, you know, why do we, why do we 
build what we build is to just make sure that customers have energy whenever they need it. And so the way we've done that historically has been to overbuild dramatically. And when we talk about overbuilding, uh, it's, you know, lots of power plants that sit around for some portion of the year unused peaker plants or some that just ramp up and ramp down as the as you climb up the load curve so the load following stuff and then uh, below that kind of sits the the base load and so what's happening now is that we're in a situation with a lot of these customers where when they need energy at any given time we can meet that by ramping up things that might be distributed rather than building a massive power plant that has to sit there for another 30 40 years of its useful life even if it's not getting run all the time and since every year there's more retirements and you know utility commissions across the country are asking so what do we do now to replace you know these retiring coal plants or whatever it might be uh, every year that there's another alternative or another resource in play like you know flexibility from demand side resources uh, is a year where something starts to significantly change in terms of the composition of the grid right and that that also you alluded to i think one thing we should be clear on which is the distinction between what we're talking about der aggregation and traditional demand response this is i realize like a little bit wonky but i think it's sort of important because you know it's worth remembering demand response is not a new thing um, and demand response is in fact the control of loads in order to benefit the grid you know it's you shave peak demand um when you are called upon and that's demand response and that that's been a you know a big market for what a decade now probably so one one key distinction between this sort of like new wave of der aggregation versus the old school demand response is one it's smaller resources typically because most demand response historically has been large commercial and industrial loads but two it's more than just um load shaving at peak times. We're talking about shifting load. We're talking about feeding back into the grid in the case of batteries or, you know, behind the meter generation. So it's providing more services, potentially providing ancillary services. Like it's, it's treating aggregated DERs um, as if they can provide the full scope of capabilities that a generator could. Exactly. Okay. So why is this hard? Like, why hasn't this already happened at full scale? Well, I think the simple answer is, uh, and it's not popular, but is that just markets have rules, right? And there's nothing really that sinister about that. Uh, The way that markets have been designed has been to make sure that, so so if you've got those two things you're trying to ensure, right, that customers can get electricity and energy whenever they want. But on the other hand, you have to kind of plan in advance in order to be able to do that. The purpose of the market and the purpose of market rules and even the purpose of the regulatory regimes for vertically integrated utilities is to just bridge the gap between what technology can do at any given point in time and what a customer needs. And so all the market rules have been designed for the last 100 plus years uh, based on what the technologies that were available at that time were just literally capable of doing. And what's different and new, and this is especially true of storage out of all the ones we've talked about the most, is that storage is just capable of doing things that a lot of those other resources are just not capable of doing, certainly not anything behind the meter or that can be customer cited. Uh, And so the reason this is so hard is because all the rules are designed for technology uh, that's been around for the last 100 years, and it hasn't really taken into account storage. Uh, One caveat to that that you raised a little bit a second ago is that for demand response, um, demand response has had, you know, in the last few years, had has already done a lot of legwork to kind of open up new parts of the market uh, in order to get um, kind of recognition or, or create streams of value for when you don't uh, have a load 
event uh, instead of having a generation event. So in other words, getting it treated, having the markets recognize that it's functionally the same thing to have uh, customers use 10 megawatts less energy as it is to fire up a gas plant for 10 megawatts of energy. Uh, and so a lot of that initial legwork like, done by demand response advocates and companies uh, is part of what's being used to propel the kind of DER aggregation plays forward today. All right, final question. You uh, you have to pick one resource, one behind the meter resource uh, that you think is going to be the you know single largest provider of this DER aggregation value in 2025. What resource do you pick? I think it's thermostats. I'm going with thermostats. Mm. And so my, my reason for that, before you tell me I'm wrong, is that it's... Uh, Storage is is expensive, and I think if, even if you look at solar penetration, like you know, it still isn't. It's not a hundred percent, right? It's like five percent, six percent, seven percent for distributed residential storage or solar. Uh, whereas thermostats, literally every single person has a thermostat, um, and you know, I think it's actually to its advantage that nobody really cares that much about their thermostat and might be more inclined to switch it out uh, if it's cost competitive, which. All this stuff we're talking about, extracting value from wholesale markets should ideally do translate to a more cost competitive product. Uh, and I think it's the one that for whatever reason, utilities like the most. And so it's going to have the least friction uh, in the market. So although it is a pretty small device uh, comparably to EV charging, for example, uh, I think that's going to be the one that that wins the day. Mm, you scooped me. I mean, I, I actually think you're probably right given the time frame that we were talking about. But I think if I can allow myself a longer time frame, since you've done that for every single one of the questions that I've asked, um, I pick EV chargers. You know, they they just a huge amount of load, and they're going to be an increasing amount of load as we get higher and higher fast charging. Um, so I, I think ultimately EV chargers are going to be incredibly valuable DERs once we figure out how to deal with you know, when people need to charge and, and how to do smart charging in a way that's really customer friendly. So ultimately, I think EV chargers are going to be the winner. That was Shale Khan and Adam James talking about the state of aggregated distributed energy back in August. You can hear that full episode by working your way back in the feed to August 13th. And while you're doing that, we have 40 other episodes you can revisit from the year. We try to make our topics relevant, but also somewhat evergreen so the resources can live on. Tell us what your favorite episode was of the year. Tweet at Interchange Show or me, Stephen Lacey, or Shil Khan. We want to hear from you. A hearty thank you to all our listeners. We're wishing you all the best as we enter 2020. This is, of course, an extremely critical decade for the energy transition. We need to decarbonize quickly, and it's going to be messy and sometimes confusing. And so we're hoping you stay with us as we try to explain it all and discover alongside you. And one final ask, please rate and review us as a gesture of support to close out the year. It is really helpful for other people who are just finding the show. Happy New Year, all. We'll catch you in the 2020s. I'm Stephen Lacey, and this is The Interchange.